NAB Show New York is where go-getters in media, entertainment, finance, and advertising connect and champion new content strategies. Discover new tools and solutions from 300-plus exhibitors and gain actionable insights from more than 50 conference sessions. Learn more at nabshowny.com and get your free core package. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. It's been a busy summer for Ethan Hawke. This past June, First Reformed was released, directed by Paul Schrader and starring Hawke as a tormented New England priest. Then came two more movies, one of which he directed, Blaze, about the country music singer-songwriter Blaze Foley. So for our latest Film Comment Free Talk, we invited Ethan Hawke to the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Nick Pinkerton was the moderator for our talk, and the house was packed. This was our latest film comment talk with IFC Films, which released Blaze starting in August. Let's listen to their conversation. So, um, by way of preliminaries, uh, it's been a very good 2018 for you, if I can be so bold, I don't know about your personal life, but professionally, everything looks very good. And... I want to talk about you know, several things, but particularly about the film that you directed, Blaze, which is opening this Friday. Yeah, t- tomorrow. And I'm, I'm operating under the assumption, even though I think you had a premiere last night, that most of the people in the room who are not in the movie maybe don't know a lot about the movie. Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> That's smart. Yeah, so if uh, maybe you could just give us a little uh, a little base to work from. All right, all right. Well, the movie that's opening tomorrow night is what we who worked on it call our gonzo indie country western opera. Um, and it centers around the life of Blaze Foley, a great singer-songwriter who was shot and killed in 1989. He lived and worked in Austin. The movie is built around Sybil Rosen's memoir about... Their love affair in a treehouse where creativity was easy, beautiful, simple, or at least the portrait we're drawing of it, is the story of how you go from falling in love in a treehouse and everything being perfect to uh, shot dead on the street uh, in Austin, Texas. And it's a movie that pretends to be a biopic, I think. I mean, it's, it's really about music and romantic love. And... Something that occurred to me and almost certainly occurred to you while you were living with these films for years is the fact that along with Blaze, you have two very prominent acting uh, parts in films this year, one Juliet Naked, the other First Reformed, and that there's a curious sort of, curious parallels that run through these three movies in that they are all in some way concerned with individuals who are deeply uncomfortable with the compromises that Mm -hmm. they have to deal with in order to continue in their individual professions. In two cases, musicians. In one case, a man of the cloth. Mm -hmm. And it's so strange to have that level of, I, I guess, like synergy between projects. Is this something that was evident to you at the time? I don't know. You're you're drawn to material. You're drawn to story. You know, you're. If you, I've been making movies since I was 13, 
right? So I, I like telling stories. And life moves in waves that are mysterious, that you don't really understand. It was an incredible thing to be offered a movie by Paul Schrader. I read that script and it felt like hearing a lion roar, like being in, walking through a jungle or something, and you're, well, who the hell is over there? You know, and it's whoever it is, it's that same person who wrote Taxi Driver, you know, and, and, um, and I, I recognized it immediately. And if you're an actor, getting to play a three-dimensional portrait is always what you're hunting for. Now, in the synergy, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's like a Jackson Pollock painting. You know, our brains just make sense out of things. We look at art and we make sense of it. You look at the Jackson Pollock painting and your brain just makes sense out of it. You just made sense beautifully out of these three disparate projects I did. I don't know if that sense is real and I don't know if it's not real. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know, I'm at a place in my life where all these things are speaking to each other. Nick Hornby writes about loving music better than anybody. My film Blaze is about loving music. How interesting that I would get a Nick Hornby offer right after doing this. I get to play a musician after spending my year with musicians. That was very fortunate for me. You know, I got to basically spend half a year creating a workshop, an acting workshop space, where I got to really think about acting and what it means to me to deliver it to others, not for myself, but to create a space for other actors to excel. And simultaneously where I'm getting the most challenging part of my life. When as soon as I rapped, you know, it was strange. I, I didn't, we didn't have enough money on Blaze to like have teams of assistants coming through and get right to work cutting the movie. You know, I had one dude and I had screwed up the way the I thought I was so smart as an actor. Now, this is actually a true story. I thought I was really smart. I've been acting in front of camera since I was 13, so I thought I knew everything, right? There's a few things you don't really know. Even though I've directed a few things, I haven't had that much experience doing it. And my wife is our producer, and she came to me late one night, and she's like, we are so over budget. Right? Something has got to give. And I was thinking that maybe we don't need 100 extras. We only need 30. No, we have to have 100. Okay. Something. No, has to be that. No, has to be that. Okay. Something Ethan has to give. And I looked at the sheet and I saw on the cruise sheet, script supervisor. Right? You know? And I thought, I hate script supervisors. You know? I, 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 I. I literally, my whole life, they tell me when to pick up the cigarette, when to put it down, when to, no, last take you did X, and this take you did Y, and now they're not cuttable. Drop dead, I'm, you know? <laughs> and and I, I, I can't stand these, these script supervisors. Male or female, I, they all drove me bananas. And now, my wife, the only other film she'd produced, really, Soup to Nuts, was a documentary. So, she was a little in the dark, right? You know, and, and I said, no, we don't need it. She says, well, isn't matching important? I said, I've got a laser brain, you know? <laughs> I am so good at matching, right? And in truth, in fairness, I am really good at it. I've got a good sense about what's cuttable and what's not cuttable. And, uh, and all that went really well until we were shooting and Richard Linkletter shows up on set and he's, he plays a small part in the movie. And he says to me, um, hey, I really want to talk to Scripty. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, 
you can just ask me, you know? <laughs> and, 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 he's, and, and he says, no, 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 you're working, you're working, you're working. Where's the script supervisor? I'm like, you know, I, I cut that position. You know, that's, that's, that's 20 grand I saved, you know? And, uh, and he said, what are you gonna do about in the edit? And, what do you mean? What do they have to, well, turns out, okay, <laughs> Script supervisor does more than matching, right? They keep track of the slate and which takes and what scene numbers and it's very important, their book for the editor. You know, so the editor, this is a very long-winded answer. The editor calls me up as soon as he's supposed to work. And he says, you know, it's weird. It's I got all the footage, everything's great. It's looking great, everything's looking great. I don't have the script supervisor's um, manual, you know, her book. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we didn't, we didn't do that. And, uh, and he was just like, what do, you, what do you mean? You know, he had to go through all the footage with no map. Well, that takes a long time, right? And especially I was doing a large level of improvisation and it was very confusing what scene was what. So I had three months to kill, right? While he did that. And um, luckily, strangely, it worked out right because Paul, the film, this is where I'm getting to answer your question. Uh, <laughs> Paul Schrader's movie had happened, and I had a chance to go like, all right, I'm gonna let him do that, and I'm gonna play this part. And I got to attack it in the same way, with the same energy that I'd asked of the actors who were working on Blaze, I could ask of myself. And that was a very, you know, that whole thing you teach what you need to learn kind of thing. I, ha I was newly inspired to act and be in front of the camera, watching Ben Dickey, Charlie Sexton, Alia Shawkat, wa watching them work and watching what makes a great take and what makes a less great take and what, where, the, where the magic lives was really exciting. And so I got to throw, for Paul Schrader, I got to throw myself in front of his camera the way these guys threw themselves for me. And that was an exciting challenge and made everything new again. It was a long answer to a very brief question. I, I mean, I just loved the, the thought that after a century of industrialized movie making, you were certain you'd figure I'd it out. I'd fixed it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We don't need that job. I don't do anything. Who needs an architect? I get it. Yeah. It would have been revolutionary. Yeah, I know. Um, I thought I was really smart. Well, I, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about something that is, is very, very central in Blaze and also in, in First Reformed, um, is just this idea of people wrestling with really how to live authentically within the role that they're playing, how to do that, and how to, to use a fairly, like, uh, out-of-fashion word, how not to sell out, how not to taint yourself in the course of pursuing something that you're passionate about. And that's very, I mean, it's interesting, the choice of subject in Blaze, because you had a whole panoply of kind of outlaw country guys who you could look Amazing at. Amazing word, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And thank you. Um, and this is not about Waylon Jennings. This is not about, you know, it's not about Towns Van Zant, though he has a character, mm -hmm. plays a big role. It's about a guy who's an outlaw to outlaw, mm -hmm. you know, about as far from the center, about as far from Nashville as you can get. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I wondered first of all, like how did you how did you come across Blaze Foley's music? Were you familiar with that prior to the book? Well, I think I, yes, I was. You know, the strangely, I've been good friends with Ben Dickey for about fifteen years, the lead actor, and he, he's the one who really taught me about Blaze. About in around two thousand six, when John Prine's album came out that had clay pigeons on it. But I think what you were about to ask me, in a way, is more interesting, which is about a relationship towards money and a relationship towards what defines success. And one of the things that's fascinating about First Reformed is you have this guy running this local parish, um, living, trying to live a sincere life of faith, right? And there's this thing that's happening in our country right now, which is the megachurches, which in a strange way is just symbolic of everything that's happening. You know, everything is uh, being bought by something else, and, and we're all, we all feel like tiny fish that are in this bubble inside a bubble inside a bubble. I mean, you could make the, uh, people have asked me about First Reform, do you think that the mega churches are a metaphor for big studio movies versus little movies, right? You, and and I, my answer is you could say that for every industry in America. The priority that we put on making money and the way that we define success as making money is largely to do with the situation we're in. You know? If we as a community don't value wisdom, compassion, um, brotherhood and sisterhood, if we, don't, if we don't see those as things to aspire for and grow towards and work towards, if we really see everybody who makes money as important and serious, and our culture does that, and I think what drew me to Blaze Foley is somebody um, uh, who was willing to say, I won't participate in society. He did this thing, the Duct Tape Messiah is a documentary about him. And this is a guy who used to put on his cowboy boots the, the Nike swoosh in um, duct tape, right? <laughs> He'd had a, you know, he had a big cowboy persona with a big E.T. phone home sticker on his forehead. And you know, everybody was into silver and he would do duct tape on his lapel, and meaning he didn't have a job. He would sleep in dumpsters. He didn't participate in the game of trying to accumulate wealth, right? Which is what we're all told is our job here. And I love and am drawn to people that are trying to like ring a bell and say, hey guys, we're all gonna be born and we're all gonna die and we don't know why and we don't like, remember, hello, we're on a star in space, y you know? Uh, we're circling the sun and we don't know where that galaxy is in relationship to other gal, I mean, there's so much we don't know. I had somebody say to me the other day, you know, in the movie, one of the first lines of the movie is that I tell you that Blaze was shot and killed and I tell you exactly how and everything like that and some, it was in a screenwriting thing and they were like, don't you think you could have gotten more tension if you'd waited, if you'd created tension, um, you know, and, and uh, my answer is quite simple that I, I know exactly what's gonna happen to everyone in this room. <laughs> I know, we're all gonna die, you know? And so I, me saying that out loud doesn't take, it's, it's how it happens and how we live that's vital. What are we doing, you know? And if all we're doing is accumulating wealth, you know, and the guy in First Reformed is saying the same thing too. He's trying to live a sincere spiritual life. And, 
you know, he's trying to do a good funeral service for a young man that he met. And some guy says, hey, why a Neil Young protest song? You know? He's like, well, the, ki the kid wanted it. Well, we don't really, see, you know, he gets pushed into a political uh, corner. He doesn't want to be a political person. I think most of us don't want to be political persons, people. We want to be humans and think on issues, right? Am I wandering or am I doing okay? You go crazy, man. Yeah, okay. Nobody's here to my, see my, me, dude. My point is trying to connect these things. That, I, I don't know what my point is. I, I, I mean, you, you asked something about what the Blaze and this priest have in common. I mean, I believe at some point in Blaze, somebody makes a comment, uh, which is something to the effect of it seemed like he'd taken a vow of poverty. Mm -hmm. So again, there is this like through line of these two sort of ascetic, almost like monk-like characters, albeit living very different lifestyles. Different lifestyles, yeah. But you know, even the character in Juliet Naked, who it's a Nick Hornby novel, and my character is a guy who completely walks away from fame. He, He's a pop star in the early 90s or whatever, and he completely walks away from it, which is something that I fantasized about doing. You know, I was always, I mean, I think we all are so uh, infatuated with J.D. Salinger, or there was a period of time where Terrence Malick walked away from his success, and we're, uh, Francis Farmer. You know, we're fascinated by these people who get accolades and then say, no, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with these accolades. Uh, and I've been, I've wondered about that a lot. And I think that for me, having gotten a lot of credit at a very young age for doing very little, I was haunted by that, you, you know? Haunted by, if you're in Dead Poet Society and you're 18 years old and people are telling you you're wonderful and you, and you know in your heart you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you, 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 know? you know that for a fact. I mean, one of the things that haunts me, no kidding, is one of the most amazing performances I'd ever seen by a peer happened in my own private Idaho, right? When I saw River Phoenix give that performance, it was the first time I saw a person my age deliver a performance that didn't feel like the director did that. You know, a lot of times when you see young, you know, you see young people in movies and say, oh, the director probably helped them do a nice job and it was a good movie. And, but no, River was an artist. You know, in a time period where it was very dangerous to play a gay character, for a teen star to say, I wanna, you know, I might be interested in kissing a man, you know, that was verboten. You know, your agents would flip out. He was very brave, he did not care. But people's response to it was very confusing to him. You know, the art part happened naturally and easy. Navigating the public self and how people wanted to commodify that. Does that mean you, you know, what does that mean about your sex life? What does it mean, what do you mean, why? Why do I have to answer those questions? Why do I have to be in this position, you, you know? He was instinctually incredibly brave artist, you know, and, and I was very moved by him and inspired by him. And I think the success made him feel like a phony, you, you know, because he knew, you know, when you're, Sir Tom Stoppard, or if you're Denzel Washington, you know, by the time Denzel won the Oscar, he'd earned it four times over, you, you, you know? And when you're young and given too much credit, you know, it, it, can, be, it, can, it can knock you off balance as bad as failure can. 
And one of the interesting things, I think, because in Blaze you're attempting to kind of get inside the psychology of somebody who maybe never made it to a certain stage and maybe never wanted to make it to a certain stage, but any time that you're telling a story that has to do with failure or opting out, you're probably not a failure or somebody who opted out to be in a position to tell that story. And how, how did you go about feeling like you were the guy who could you know, get inside this world, get inside this you know, totally out there world? That's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, by tough, I mean, that's very smart and um, I ask myself that a lot. I don't think she's here anymore, but Sybil Rosen, who wrote the book that the memoir is based on, uh, I felt very un unqualified to make the movie. I wanted to make it. I wanted to make it for Ben. You know, the movie had jettisoned. I, I loved Blaze Foley. Ben Dickey is my friend, and he had this band in Philly called the Blood Feathers, and I used to go see them play. And they would rock some dive bar till four in the morning and I'd watch Ben hold court about an audience about this size he would hold court and I mean it was just it was rock and roll and this band was met you know they couldn't even it submit their records to get reviewed and they would say not good enough to be reviewed you know? wow okay damn you know even I'm not even good enough to get a bad review <laughs> right I mean that's that's fucking bad right and, and, and I'm sitting there going, Ben, I, I'm just a human being. I watched the show, I listened to the album, it's amazing. He's like, yeah, thanks. And, and the band was breaking up and he was in a lot of pain about it. And he had taught me about, he'd played Blaze Foley for me. And I said, remember Blaze Foley? You know, he's, and I remember there's so many artists out there operating an extremely high level who can't find a place in the commercial environment. That doesn't mean their work is not of value. And your work is of value. He's like, thanks. I'm like, no, man, don't say thanks. You, I mean, we should, you should play Blaze Foley in a movie, I said to him. You know, and he said, oh, thanks. And I'm like, no, I'm going to do that, you know? And so I started this project. And so I got myself in. But in a way, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, the idea wasn't to make a biopic. I did love Blaze's music. And I did want to deliver it to audiences. But I wanted not to deify one artist, but to talk about artists in general and creativity in general and how fraudulent success and failure are, the perception of them. I mean, how many times you read some story about some guy who won the Oscar and later that night beat up his wife and that's like success? And we go, oh, must have been wonderful to win the Oscar. I mean, we don't know what success and failure are. You, you see, you know, Nelson Mandela gets shoved in jail. Oh, how well, terrible. Well, change the world from there. I mean, we don't, we don't get anything, right? And so I thought, well, Blaze would be a great avenue to make this story, but was I qualified? I sat there, we were doing this, about a month before Blaze fully died, he took all the money that he'd made from this um, residual check on, Willie had covered one of his songs, William Merle, and he wanted to record from some friends, he had a concern that he was gonna die, but he wasn't taking terrible care of himself, so it wasn't, uh, irrational concern um, and he wanted to record a concert and he played his dive bar it's called the outhouse tapes and you can find him and he, he, he played this concert 
in, I've lost my train of thought there, but it was in a very beautiful concert. Where was I talking about? <laughs> I distracted myself about the concert, about Ben. The, he played the outhouse, and I was very moved by it because it's a person playing these unbelievably beautiful songs, and you can kind of tell as you listen to them that no one is listening. And I've seen that. Oh, oh, qualified. You asked me if I was qualified. Thank you. And I have done that. You know, I started this theater company, and we, I once had this play where we had about 17 people on stage, and our high water audience was about six people in the audience. But I remember I had to pick when I was filming them, what's going to be on TV in the background? I started thinking, well, what was on TV in January of 89? And I started thinking, well, what was I doing in January of 89? And the thought occurred to me, I was filming Dead Poets Society when this guy was shot and killed. And I thought, I have no right to make this movie. I mean, you know, somebody paid me 30 grand to act when I was 18, you know? And I was just a spoiled little brat, you know? And, and I thought, and I went to Sybil, what am I even doing here? You know? And, and, and her answer was, I, for some reason, she feels like Blaze picked me. You know? Go figure. Um, but it, uh, she gave me permission to do it, and, and so we did it. But my, my point is that I felt, to answer your question, no uh, right to be telling the story. I just, it was the person who the story, I fell in my hands. But you, you co-wrote with Sybil. Yeah. And... Yeah, I do lots of things I don't have the right to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really, not having read the book, like the film itself has a very, very interesting structure, which is sort of flashbacks within flashbacks. And I'm assuming that a lot of that is original to the screenplay. Sure. And I w I'd be interested just to hear how you kind of came across that because we have sort of in, you know, presumably somewhere in the early 1990s, Towns Van Zandt at a radio station narrating the story of Blaze Foley. We have then in 1989 a concert in the outhouse where Blaze Foley is kind of working through his entire Catalog. discography. And then we see within that sort of the inspiration Where for a lot started. of these songs. Yeah. Yeah. It's past, present, future, in my mind, you, you know, and how they all interact. They're always interacting. You know, the past doesn't go anywhere. It's not even the past. Tom Robbins has my favorite line about it's never too late to have a happy childhood, right? Like, like the, 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 the facts might be the same, but how you feel about the facts it's constantly changing based on where you're at in your emotional life, right? And so that's how I experience life, is nothing is happening. You know, it's a string of firecrackers, right? And you need the whole string for it to make sense. And so I really wanted to play with time in that way and, and have flashbacks inside of flashbacks. Inside, I wanted the movie, biopics always operate in this kind of linear he was born, you know, and then something tragic happened and he got deep and then he got famous and then he got self-centered. <laughs> then the self-centered got too far and drugs came into the picture. Then he found a good woman and then he realized that 
you know, Jesus and the woman would take care of him or something like that. You know, I mean, some, it follows this normal to walk the line. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And, <laughs> Just call it by name. And, and, um, and it doesn't, life doesn't work like that. You know, the, the, the lots of people have pain and don't turn it into great art. And lots of people don't even have any pain and they make great art. I mean, life is mysterious. And I, I wanted to create a relationship to time that was obvious that I don't know the truth. It is not a biopic. I don't know what happened. I start off, the movie opens with a totally unreliable narrator, Towns Van Sant, telling you exactly what happened with his friend. That doesn't, sounds highly implausible. And, um, but that, that is part of the equation too. You know, perception creates reality, right? And that, so we all have, if I made a movie about your life and it was told from your wife's point of view, it's one movie. If it's from your dad's point of view, it's a different movie. From it's a, uh, you know, from your best friend when you were a kid, it's a totally other movie. And so that, there's not one truth to tell. I wanted to make a blues song about Blaze Foley's life and his love affair with Sybil Rosa. And it was gonna start with my baby's gone, you know, and it's gonna, it's gonna go in a circular verse chorus kind of way with little breaks for a bridge, right? Until it kind of wraps itself up. But that was the idea of that movie. And every movie should have an idea, you know? I mean, First Reformed is a totally different, I, I, as I was making eye contact with you, I realized like, well, I'm talking about that movie, but I love form and content. You know, Richard Linkletter really taught me about that, about how if you're gonna, Divorce yourself from the normal TV architecture. Boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy finds girl, or girl, you know, invert the genders, whatever it is. The normal beginning, middle, and end. If you're gonna invert, you need to replace it with a different kind of architecture. Boyhood has the architecture of school, first grade through 12th grade. You actually have a plot. Oh, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. You see, oh, we're getting close to senior year. <gasps> he graduates, oh, I graduated, I feel it. You, you, you know, it's like a different, it's a different thing. You know, um, before sunrise, you know, what happens when you really connect with another human being? That whole movie is very simple idea. And, and Rick said it beautifully to me when I was auditioning for it, is that his whole life he goes to movies and you're being told that espionage and helicopter crashes and gunfights and murder mysteries. It's like, I've never had anything like that happen to me. And, and yet my life has felt full of drama. You know, so what is that about? And the most dramatic thing that's ever happened to me, he said to me, is actually connecting with another human being. That, that is drama. And he's like, I want to make a movie about that. Can we do it? It's like, I don't know. Well, you have to develop a different architecture. Okay, we're gonna set up, they're gonna meet on a train, right? And they're gonna agree that they're never gonna speak to each other after this night. Well, wait a second, now we just loaded a gun. Because now if you get close, you, you know, and, and, and things start getting interesting. And each one of the before trilogy has its own version of a ticking clock and a loading gun, and a loaded gun. And the meaning, you need some architecture. And the architecture for Blaze is a blues song. It's totally based on that kind of circular storytelling. And you have to be patient with it. If you don't like a blues song, you won't like this movie. That is true. Um, and First Reformed has the architecture of winter light. It has a different kind of a Bergman-esque, Bresson-esque 
architect. And that's why it's important what the aspect ratio is. That's important why the camera doesn't move, why the camera doesn't have any over the shoulders. He's creating tension by using a different kind of architecture. And I find that is the kind of thing you don't notice really when you're watching a movie, but it's so vital to the guts of what makes a good movie. I, I, I'm just now remembering, and I wonder if this was ever broached, but I know that Schrader wrote a Hank Williams Jr. Yeah. screenplay years yeah. ago yeah. before Mishima. So it's, yeah. that's he talked to me about that, scared the sh pants out of me. Because <laughs> um, he ended up struggling with the rights, you know, and then the whole thing shut down. And, and you know, with Blaze, Marcia, his sister, has been incredibly kind to me. And uh, helped to make this movie happen. Without her, it, it couldn't be. NAB Show New York is where go getters in media, entertainment, finance, and advertising connect and champion new content strategies. 300 plus startup innovators and industry respected leaders are gearing up to answer your questions as you demo their latest products and solutions. 50-plus sessions taking place on the show floor will get you up to speed on new business models, trending technology, and the latest creative inspirations. All complemented by several community-focused events set to expand your network and connect you with influencers shaping careers, creativity, and culture. Learn more at nabshowny.com and get your free core package. I feel like maybe we're about at that point in these sort what, of events when we start to mm. float out into the audience and see if gentlemen in the Lacoste. Ethan, man to man, thank you for everything that you've done. Uh, a lot of your films uh, is about like, uh, like the, the, the life of a boy and becoming a man. So I want to personally thank you for that. Um, first question, um, I'm planning on shooting a feature and uh, it's gonna be my first full feature and it's a very low budget. And I wanted to know, there's certain things that you can't control. Mm -hmm. So what things should I sacrifice and what things can I not sacrifice? What a great, that's a great question, man. I mean, that's the question. Exactly. And, and before you answer that, I have a second one, uh, yeah. if I can. Um, you know, Martin Scorsese, he said it best when he said, uh, film is a visual medium. Mm -hmm. And it's like when you look at a painting, a painting is just a painting. There's no voice, there's no mm -hmm. text. Uh, since film has different forms of art, it has the visual, it has the sound, it has the music, etc. I feel like the, the, the notion of it's a visual medium is starting to get blurred. And so now people aren't focusing on the visuals and they're focusing on maybe the dialogue. Mm -hmm. So is it right for me to think that that's the most important thing when this is yeah, man, what it's I love, about? I love this question. Right? Can I tell you one thing that drives me crazy? Yeah. Is every film school that you go to, they always teach cinematography. And they say this, it's a visual medium. It is a visual medium. but. If you think about the history of cinema and how many great film directors were cinematographers, not very many, actually. If you think about, in the history of cinema, how many great filmmakers are, and this is gonna sound self-aggrandous, I, I don't mean it, it's gonna get a laugh. Yeah, I really, really mean this, are, are actors, it's a lot. 
Woody Allen, Orson Welles, Spike Lee, Warren Beatty, Robert Redford, I mean, the Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, you know, understanding acting and directing are the same. They're an interpretive art. They're about taking great writing and sharing it. It's about saying, oh, to be or not to be, that's a great line. Let me explain to you why, <laughs> right? That's what it's about. It's not about a picture, you know? And I, it bothers me that film schools don't teach acting. You know, that's what bothers me. And, and, and because they love cinematography. And I think, is cinematography super easy to understand? It's two-dimensional. You can sit back behind the monitor. You don't have to get messy. You don't have to get in a fight with anybody. You don't have, I walk on a set all the time, and a lot of directors, they, they have this attitude like, is he gonna fuck up my shot list? <laughs> so I thought, I thought your character would be walking over here, and I might say, why? Right? And they go, oh, God. I'm just asking why. It's just because your shot list says I will. I, I'm curious why. And you know, I watched, you know, I learned a lot from Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington's a logic police. That doesn't make sense. How many bullets are in my gun? Why would I do that? And the reason why he does it is not to screw with the director. It's to be in the mindset of the audience. Audiences are smart. How many times have you been in the movie and they go, why is she walking in there? Right? And, and you think, why did the actor not ask the director, I don't want to go in there. The boogeyman is in there, right? And, and, and audiences are smart. And, and, and so thinking like an actor, not being afraid of your actors, the, it, it's super controllable. I've seen so many directors, they love it when the actors are wrapped and they get to shoot close-ups of the water and they turn it like this. Because it's all, actors are messy and sloppy in their people. And it's, it's in their, they've got skin and they smell weird sometimes and it's, it's hard, you know? But you gotta be open. I got to uh, watch Mike Nichols do one of these kinds of things, you know, before he passed. And he said that the only thing he was really proud of from his whole body of work were the things that, that he couldn't remember whose idea it was. It's the, it's the sparks of collaboration. So the answer to your question, the first question about what to cut and what to compromise, really think about who you're, and it is a collaborative medium. It is, you're right, it's writing, directing, acting, music, literature, it's costume design, it's art design. I can't tell you how often I've seen a, screw, a scene screwed up by the wrong jacket. An actor's in the wrong jacket, you don't believe the scene. It's weird, and, and it's been really fun. My wife has really gotten interested in producing, so I've watched her learn, and she would just like, this scene doesn't work, what is it? And, and, I'll, and I'll be cutting it and cutting it, and she'd just say to me, you know, Ethan, truthfully, she would never be wearing that jacket. And it undermines the whole thing. And I'm like, damn it, she's right. And once it's that problem, the scene's gotta go. And that's a drag, because the writer in you put that scene in there for a reason. And now you gotta make it up some other way. And it's very complicated. The thing that I think separates Richard Linkletter from other independent filmmakers is we've never had a scene on the editing room floor. He is, when you only have two bucks to make a movie, you don't have time to have anything on the editing room floor. So you gotta be surgical in here about what is a waste of your time. And if it's gonna, people, if you're, 
making a big budget Hollywood movie, sure, you can go film things and make the movie in the editing room. You gotta be surgical up here. Rehearse, think, talk with your people, trust your collaborators. If they're telling you something's wrong, it's they're not trying to screw with you. you there was a time when you really wanted them to join this project, right? And it's because you thought they were smart. So listen, and if you can't convince them, then maybe your idea's wrong, right? And you gotta be open to that. That'd be my answer to that question. Um, good evening. Good evening. First and foremost, thank you. I'm, I'm a drama student at Tisch, and I just wanna thank you for the honesty and the, the bravery of your entire body of work. So, um. Very welcome, it's my pleasure. <laughs> um, as, as a young artist, currently I'm of the belief that we create art about that which we do not fully understand, that the creative process is a venture into the unknown. It's a process of figuring things out. And so I was wondering with, with Blaze and also with First Reformed, was there anything, whether about humanity, about yourself, about romantic love that, that you were trying to figure out? Well, in, let's take First Reformed, for example. In the movie, I'm playing a priest and he's in a tremendous amount of pain. Mm -hmm. He's just in a tremendous amount of physical and emotional and mental pain. He's lost his son and he went and counseled another young man who he really liked and wanted to help. And he, he failed there too, you know. And so there's immense pain there. And I felt when I read that script, I felt the way I think and I imagine a lot of people feel right now, which is that we don't understand religious leadership. You know, I don't understand an evangelical community that, uh, that doesn't, un hasn't read, doesn't seem to have read the New Testament. I don't understand that. I don't understand, uh, you know, what my character is saying, why don't you care about God's earth? Right? You, you know, why, why, why aren't we caring for each other? Why aren't we teaching my father's reign falls equally on the just and the unjust, right? I mean, it's like we're all in this together and he's feeling this very profoundly and there's no political leadership and that leaves, well, then I'm supposed to lead and I don't know what to do and it's this cry. You know, I saw that whole movie is, is not an intellectual this is what you should do, or that's what you should do. Right. It's a spiritual cry, you, you know? And it's unknowable. It's a mystery. What do we do with the fact that the planet is melting? And, and, and nobody seems to care, or they care, but our government, we're still like talking about all these other things that don't make any sense to me. And, and we feel so overwhelmed by those kind of questions that we don't want to say anything. And, and so my point is, there's a deep mystery that I think runs through anything good, particularly Paul Schrader's writing. An unknowable mystery. It doesn't present any answers. It's just a cry. It's an intelligent cry. You know, meaning it's asking very good questions with no answers. And I agree with you. I'm very moved by that. So, but I think anything worthwhile has all that unanswerable stuff. I think as soon as you know the answer, you're probably being pompous. Yeah, you, then it you know, becomes didactic. If, yeah, what you want to be doing is a joint seeking. Paul said to me, I asked him, for those of you who have seen the movie, the ending of the movie is very strange, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I said to him, I love this, and I'm going to play the hell out of it. 
but what am I playing? You, you, you know? And he said to me, a good movie is, is a ringing of a bell, right? A good, a good movie starts when you walk out of the theater, you, you know? Mm. It's, it's vibrating with you. And you can hate it, or you can like it, but its point is to vibrate in here. And everybody now thinks these things like entertain, it's, you're just supposed to like everything. You know, I mean, it was like, I, I did this Brecht play. We did a modern adaptation of a Brecht play. Um, and I had to tell the cast, it's called Clive. And I had to tell the cast, I said, if we do this right, we won't get one good review. <laughs> right? If we get one good review, we failed. The job of this play is to make you feel deeply uncomfortable. And so Bre Brecht is a very intelligent person, right? And he's, it's just something punk rock about the play, right? It's screaming into the microphone so loud, and you're like, wait, what does that mean? It's a little bit like um, Allen Ginsberg when he would go on Johnny Carson and he would chant Hare Krishna and stuff. And there's yeah, a great yeah. interview with him where apparently like Kerouac or somebody said, don't you know everybody thinks you're crazy? And he said, yeah, I know. That's my job. And that's our job, right? Yeah. Is to say, hey, are you sure you're awake? Hello, hello, does this piss you off? Does this make you feel good? Just make you feel bad. Hello, hello. Because we, otherwise we're all just keep sleeping and eating and trying to make money. There Thank was um, a show of Pixel Vision films here at yeah. Film Society about a month ago. And one of them featured was, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of this uh, as you talk about the punkness of Brecht and just uh, the general necessity of pissing off. But one of them was Michael Almereta's Sundance 95. Rocky which, Horse Winner, or what was it? Sundance 95. Sundance oh, 95. The I'm in that. You are in it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just this, uh, like, it, it's a series of short vignettes of people who are in Sundance in 1995 just talking about the future and the past of cinema. And in your particular segment, you know, it's you and Richard Linklater, and you just start doing some, like, quite blunt shit-talking of, like, Jeffrey Katzenberg, like, forcing you to... <laughs> and, I, I mean, it's really a delightful thing because, you know, you're in your, like, mid-20s. Mm -hmm. You're like, man, what is this guy doing? He's, like, losing work right here. I did. <laughs> yeah, I lost a lot of work. Yeah. And, like, that is just... That is not something that one is really accustomed to seeing from people in the public eye these days. There you can count on a couple of hands the number of actors who will sort of say impolitic things in public well, circuit. You know. I, I was very moved. I don't know if you guys saw it, but we're, we are living in a very funny time. And, and we're all adjusting. One of the things that I think is... Is, 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 that goes lost is how, what a young art form cinema is. You know, literature is, you know, thousands of years old. Acting is so old. People have been sitting around the campfire singing and telling stories and taking on roles and a witch doctor puts on a hat and plays this part. This stuff is really old. But movies, you know, it's like 100 years old. It's so young. And big business is eating it. You know, it's just eating it alive. And, and it, they even want to say, as soon as you say art or cinema, people roll their eyes like you're pretentious. And we're like, well, I just want to ask why again? Why is that pretentious? And if we don't have some pretense of hoping for something deeper and something better, all we want to... See, I think people like the idea of making money because then they know exactly your motive. 
And they know exactly, well, you just, you want to make five bucks. I get it. It's okay. Yeah, I'll buy that crack. How much? You know, and, and um, I get it. It's okay. You know, you sell crack. I get it. You got to make a living. Everybody's got to make a living. And the point being is that there's a thing on Bill Maher said the other day that I can't stop thinking about where he talks about how in superhero movies, avatars are like better than our real self. They're stronger, they can fly. Our avatar self is stronger, he talks about. And yet, in our real life, our Instagram self, our Facebook self, our public self is a diminished version of ourself. It has no edges, it has no sexuality, it has no mistakes, it has no messiness, it doesn't smell, it's not human, right? And we're reducing ourselves again and again. We're scared to be impolitic. You know, you bring that up, I did, I, I was not afraid of certain things that I really should have been afraid of. I mean, you know, I got kicked in the teeth for that kind of behavior back then. And I feel very lucky to be here and I feel scared to be on film right now about how I'm gonna to respond to that question because I've recovered and I, in my own personal sense of idealism, I sometimes made this mistake of making others feel judged. And what I wasn't clear on is that I don't have the ability to judge it. I'm pressing myself to understand myself and what it is I want to do. I have lived long enough to know that there is not one right way and there is not one wrong way. I certainly don't know the right way. You know? I know things that feel bad to me and I know things that feel good to me. And connecting with other people really, and feeling their art, and giving other people a chance to communicate, and feeling heard, feeling witnessed, and witnessing other people. That feels good. And doing things to, for, let me be clear, doing art for the sake of making money feels a little weird to me. I've done it, and I will do it again because I have four children, and I, am, and I am not good at anything else, right? So I don't stand in judgment of, I just mean I'm living a life in search of what's gonna create the most healthy, exciting life. And I love, Cassavetti said it best, you can sell out. Just ask yourself what you're selling out for, right? You know, if you're selling out, you have no idea what you wanna do, so I'll just do a bunch of perfume ads. Guess what you are? Yes. You sell perfume, right? If you're doing a perfume ad so that you can make this Ginsburg poem into a little short film that you and your sister really think could be amazing if you shot it on Pixel Vision and you're gonna release it online, you're not selling out. You know, you're Robin Hood. You, you know, everything is, there's not one right, you know what I mean? And Cassavetti's made lots of dopey things. And he made lots of brilliant things, and so he found a sense of balance. I'm just picking on him. There's lots of, you know, you can see Dennis Hopper doing like whiskey ads in Rolling Stone magazine in 1972. You can, I, I mean to say that when I was young, I thought I had an idea of what was right and what was wrong, and I really have been humbled by that. Jeffrey Katzenberg has made a lot of great art, you know. Um, I didn't understand the relationship that I had towards acting and big business and how those two things fit. Um, in the black tank top, or dress, in fact, I just really need to get these right. <laughs> She's like, this is not a tank top. 
It's a dress. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you for being here. And um, you've had quite the year. Uh, it's been awesome seeing you direct and act and fulfill all your passions. Um, I'm just curious to know what the rehearsal process was like on Blaze between Ali and Ben and what it was like to get them to achieve that intimate chemistry and whether you felt like you had to kind of switch off your acting hat and put on your directing hat because acting is so moment to moment and it's so easy to get lost, but as a director, you need to be able to facilitate it and shape it and finesse it. So I'm just curious about that process. I love acting. You know, I, I, it's everything I do in my life from my relationship to my family to my relationship to myself, to writing, to directing, has stemmed and been a process off of what I've learned from acting. Acting has put me in the rooms with Tom Stoppard, with Sam Shepard, with Richard Linkletter. Um, it's gotten me to act with Sally Hawkins and Greta Gerwig and Julianne Moore and all these amazing artists, right? And so, what I tried to do when I was directing was to create the environment that I would most want and to not be afraid. One of the things that Linkletter does that is different than virtually every other director is, well, you know, Antoine Fuqua, there's, I, there's lots of people who have been good, but Rick is really excels at asking you to join him as a filmmaker. To say, take responsibility for this movie. Bring me your best self. Do you like this line? You know, what do you think about this? And as he invites you in, you become a participant. You know, you don't become an actor who's being told to go left or right. You, you know, and what happens then is a collective consciousness thing where ideas get stronger. His confidence is such that he's really willing to hear contrary ideas. And that's very exciting to be around. And so I tried to do the same thing. I tried to, um, I tried to plan the shooting schedule in a way that would be the way that I knew. I've, I, you know, I've made over 50 movies. So I could look at the shooting schedule and go, you know what? I'm gonna do the opposite. Everybody, what directors normally do is, let's say I have a, a scene where I have giant monologues. Directors normally will leave that for the end, right? Well, that's cool and everything, but that means I have to dread doing these monologues for the whole production, right? And I have to worry about it every night before I go to sleep, whereas the truth is I'm at my best in the beginning because I have all this time to prep. So I gave Ben and Alia some of their hardest scenes day one, day two, day three, because I knew they actually had six, seven, eight weeks to prepare for those days. And then, and then you start going downhill. You know, it's the same reason why coaches like to make spring training so hard. Preseason's so hard, because then you look forward to the game. Game becomes play, right? Well, that's what a good coach does. In rehearsal, one of the things I also learned from Rick is that people often think rehearsal means let's get together and say our lines and practice how you walk from here to there. Rehearsal sometimes is just being together and finding out who your mom is, who your sister is, who your best friend is, what do you think about Lacoste hats, you know? And, and, and you get to know each other. And in getting to know each other, it sounds corny and everything, but to be intimate with, to be creative, you have to be intimate and you have to feel safe, you know? 
for Julie Delpy and I to achieve a thing on camera where you believe that we care and are connected with each other. We have to care and be connected. Is my, my, the best, my favorite acting teacher I ever had was, I did this movie when I was 18 called White Fang, where I did all these scenes with these half wolves. And the amazing thing about working with the wolf, right, is if you are acting, they get all freaked out, <laughs> right? Like if you're doing a scene with a wolf where you're like, come here, White Fang, and, and you're secretly like worried about how you look, right? The wolf goes, what are you looking at? You know, like, what is, like, like, you have to actually want the dog to come to you. You have to actually want to pet her, right? And it sounds kind of stupid, but it's, it's Strasbourg. You, you know, you, well, why do I want to pet this dog? Do I want to pet the dog because the camera wants me to? Or do I like the way its fur looks right under here? Did I have a dog when I was eight and it passed away and I really want to hold you? You mean, whatever the hell it is, whatever the truth is, you start to, Ben, this, I cast this musician who'd never acted before as the lead of my movie. And he kept being, he was be saying, well, what am I gonna do about this? Or what am I gonna do about why? And what am I gonna do with my hands and this thing? And uh, listen, just trust me, you know who Blaze is. Look at Alia Shawcat in the eyes and say your first line. You know, preparation, 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 let go. You know, and that, that generally works. Thank you. Um, in the check shirt. Me? You got it. <laughs> I was going to write a really nasty letter to the editor for film comment, yeah. but I got picked. So when I think about First Reformed, I think about how it's part of a series, you know, not a superhero movie series, but a series of Paul Schrader films, the Man in the Room films. And I totally. think about the big shoes that, I mean, you, you don't have to... F Bill, per se, but these people who came before, mm -hmm. like Willem Dafoe, Woody Harrelson, De Niro, Richard Gere, um, and you were talking about permission earlier, and I'm wondering, to do something like that, to work with Schrader in this series, or to work with Sidney Lumet, or something like that, what part of you do you have to shut off to really be able to get in there and be like, ah? Good question. I loved Light Sleeper. He's told me a lot of people haven't seen this movie, Light Sleepers, one of Schrader's earlier films um, with Willem Dafoe. And it is Taxi Driver, Light Sleeper, American Gigolo, The Walker, First Reformed. They're, they're part of a lineage that Paul has been writing about his whole life. And a lot of great actors have played these roles. You have to not, as soon as you think about giving yourself permission, you're thinking about it from an egocentric point of view. In a way, it starts earlier than that, which is that I'm in service of this art form, do or die, whether I get a job or whether I don't get a job. What I tell my daughter is like, if she wants to go into acting, she is an actor, she's very good, but if teaching acting at a high school in Seattle when you're 62, if that doesn't sound great, then get out. Get the fuck out, you, you know? Because then what are you doing? If you don't think it's worth it to do that, then what, what is it that you're doing? You know? And, and so you don't get to decide whether or not you're good or whether she's good or he's good or who's the best. You get to decide whether or not you think art has value. Right? And then you just put yourself at it. And then the world, you know, well, the world is weird, right? The world celebrates some ding-dong songsmith and Blaze Foley lives and dies totally ignored. Right? I mean, the world doesn't know what it's doing. 
You don't have to take that seriously. Success and failure, right? So I don't think like, oh my God, am I gonna be as good as Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver? I know I'm not, but I know that what he did has value for me as a person, not as a talent, as a person, as a man. Robert De Niro was a person who wakes up and has breakfast and learns those lines, right? And I'm so glad he did. You know, and Paul Schrader asked me to do this part. So I got to wake up and have breakfast and learn these lines and do this. It's not up to me. It's up to me to try to do my best, right? And I got 30 years on this. I got something I can give. I know it. I've learned something. And I know this guy, you know, I, 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 I love, I've spent so much time around the, in the religious community. My family is so spiritual and it's all part of the way I was raised. And I've been waiting for this part for so long. I, I knew it on page three, I wanted to play this guy. So I, I just, you gotta think like a, a player who wants the ball. You gotta get you, it's like, it, if you worry too much about not catching it or not doing a good job, then you don't want the ball. It's too much fear in the room. It's okay if you drop the ball. It's worth it that people play, right? And so if you get yourself in that mindset, then you don't, there's nothing really to worry about. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. I believe it's about that time. Okay, wow. I'm exhausted. Music by Greg Angie. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.